This episode of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies is sponsored by our Patreon supporters. We thank you. Welcome to episode 52 of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, The Father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty sidekick, Jackson the Sun, and I'm sorry, but Camp Blackfoot just doesn't carry the same weight as Camp Blood, and that's a fact. <laughs> and having been to Camp Blood, I agree with you. So we are a spoiler podcast. We do spoil the movies we discuss, and this week we are going back to 1981, a year when I was still cute, and we're covering the slasher classic, The Burning. <laughs> This summer, if you're planning to go camping, don't. If you're looking forward to midnight swims, don't. Sneak on back to the campsite. Get some matches. Build us a hot fire. Don't be long. And if you're thinking about being with someone where no one can see you, don't. Because this summer, a legend of terror isn't just a campfire story anymore. They say he smashed his way through the bunk room door, just a mass of flames. Burned alive, he cried out, I will return, I will have my revenge. He lives on whatever he can catch. Right now, he's out there, watching, waiting. Who's there? What happened one summer five years ago is about to happen again, and again, and again. The Burning. So, Jackson, I already know the answer, but for our listeners, when did you first see The Burning? You know, it's it's another one of those movies where I've seen it so many times I lost track, but fortunately, I did leave a letterbox review for this. And my first time ever seeing it, uh, I was pretty hot on it. This was back in 2018, and uh, I thought it was fantastic. I said, man, this is a modern classic. Uh, upon rewatch, there are some issues, but I will say... Oh! It still, it still holds up on the fun aspect. Oh, man. Uh, well, I saw it on VHS back in the 80s. I was worried about uh, C&D, as Gilman Joel calls it, but uh, we'll discuss. We'll discuss. So here is the IMDb synopsis. A former summer camp caretaker, horribly burned from a prank gone wrong, lurks around an upstate New York summer camp bent on killing the teenagers responsible for his disfigurement. Uh, well, one of them is responsible for his disfigurement. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's I guess it's a Jason situation where where Pamela is killing counselors even though they have nothing to do with Jason's. Uh, well, hit. we're gonna talk about Friday Thirteenth in this. We're, we'll get into that. The All comparisons right. just have to be drawn. I mean, they're oh, too yeah. similar. Oh yeah. So anyway, it's a, basically a take on Cropsy, which is the New Jersey legend about a child killer. And there's a great documentary out there about it. Um, but aside from Cropsy, let's get the creep factor out of the way. This was the first film 
produced and even co-written, <coughs> doubt that, yeah. uh, by the Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Yep, I saw that. Uh, th- this is one of two films written by Harvey Weinstein. The other looks like a teen romantic comedy. And, uh, yep, I think it kind of shows, because this movie is sort of on the exploitative side uh, in quite a few scenes. With uh, some, oh, some characters... With, with some characters who I think are supposed to be underaged because they're not the counselors. They're the kids going to the camp. Uh, yeah. So let's start off with this. What do you think about the premise, the story, the screenplay mm-hmm. of The Burning? The concept, not bad. Uh, Cropsy really fascinates me because it's such a strange urban legend. Nobody can seem to decide on who Cropsy is. The story changes so much every single time. There is obviously some truth behind it because, you know, that documentary was made about it. But it seems like it changes from person to person what the, the, the specifics are behind the, the urban legend. And I like that this movie really nails it down and that it, it, gives it, it gives you something solid to grab onto. I think Cropsy is a solid villain. Um, I think there's a lot of potential with him, and obviously, I think a lot of people have made this comparison, he pretty much seems to have inspired Freddy Krueger in Nightmare on Elm Street. He has a very similar origin story, um, oh. where, where he's disliked by a lot of people, and uh, he's burnt alive, then comes back for vengeance against the people who uh, have killed him, even though... Uh, he didn't die, first of all. And second of all, they're not the same kids, but that's that's beyond the point. I feel like this not only took inspiration from Friday the 13th, but also inspired later movies to come. Well, okay, here is what, and take it with a grain of salt, but I, I have a theory. I have a theory. Harvey Weinstein claims that this screenplay was written before Friday the 13th. Okay. You buy that? Uh, it may have been at least a draft of it, but by the time that this was in production, there was no way they weren't going to be influenced by Friday the 13th. I mean, even before the movie came out, people were already hyping it up. So there's no way they didn't at least attempt to make uh, a quick buck off of this in in the wave of summer camp movies that were coming out at that time. Um, Now, I will say, I will say... There are quite a few original aspects in this. I think it does a good job of differentiating itself from stuff like Friday the 13th and later Sleepaway Camp. Um, however, there, the influences are worn on its sleeve. There are quite a few shots in this that do remind me of Friday the 13th. All right. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute because I have a theory. Mm-hmm. I have a theory. So, But you couldn't help but to be struck by the cast, right? Yeah, an amazing cast, and one you wouldn't expect. I mean, we have future Seinfeld alumni, along with people that were in movies like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's, it's a kind of a myth. It, it's, a com- it's a comedic cast, and that's kind of strange for this horrific movie. Well, we have Fisher Stevens, who would show up later, become famous with Short Circuit. Mm-hmm. We have Jason Alexander, who, other than Seinfeld, was also in Jacob's Ladder. That's right. Uh, you have Holly Hunter. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and you do have... And, and a very small role, by the way. I didn't even recognize it was her until I looked at the IMDb page. Yeah, and so you also have... Uh, you have Brian, is it 
Beckel or Breckel, who would go on to be in Fast Times at Richmond High, and mm-hmm. who was nominated for a Tony Award playing a young Woody Allen and then went on to do nothing. Yeah, he was in The Money Pit with Tom Hanks, if I'm not mistaken, and one of the Police Academy sequels, but yep. uh, he was not... I think he was typecast. I think that's the reason his career didn't go very far, simply because he seems to play that kind of same uh, wimpy, kind of sympathetic, nerdy character in every movie he's in. Um, So obviously you can only go so far with that. And I think once he kind of aged out of that role, he wasn't going to get very many roles. Yeah, but isn't it weird that... Okay, so the Weinsteins are doing this movie. Obviously they go on to huge success with Miramax, mm-hmm. um, in the late eighties and and nineties. Um, and yet their leading cast does almost mm-hmm. nothing after this. Yeah. And the supporting characters go on to illustrious careers. I see what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. That is interesting. And I'm wondering if the amount of screen time correlates to how much you're shunned in Hollywood. Um, I mean, Kevin Bacon wasn't the main character of Friday the 13th, and he went on to have a great career, uh, but the rest of the cast wasn't so lucky. I'm wondering if, yeah, that, that is tied to it. If they see you on, on, on posters and promotional pictures for The Burning, they're like, yeah, we're not going to cast you in the movie. That, that might be it. But, but that is interesting, that the Weinsteins wouldn't even consider them for later roles. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just that it's that the supporting cast goes on to such greatness mm-hmm. and the lead cast does almost nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. Fisher Stevens, not only did he do Short Circuit, yep. the steal away role in Short Circuit, by the way, mm-hmm. he dated Michelle Pfeiffer. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, that that's the peak of Hollywood, isn't it? It is. Oh, and most certainly, I will say this. Uh, I usually say this for our Patreon uh, subscribers. When I first moved to Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, I had this thing called a Thomas Guide, which is pre-GPS. It's like a huge book that shows you every street in Hollywood, every address, and or, or Los Angeles. And so, and you really needed it because there's like Sepulveda Boulevard in in Los Angeles stops and restarts in like mile long segments. I mean, it's really confusing. So I had this thing called a Thomas guide. And so the first thing I wanted to do when I moved to LA and I had my own car was I wanted to go to the sunset strip. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I pull up to a stoplight at the sunset strip and I look over and there is a convertible Mercedes and there is Michelle Pfeiffer. And I bet you geeked out. Uh, I missed the green light. <laughs> yep, I can see why. So she was pulling away, and you were just kind of panning your head to, to follow her, wondering why, where she was going. It's like one of those movie moments. It was all in slow motion. I, I, I may or may not have been drooling, yes. I mean, it was... And, and she is... I met a lot of Hollywood starlets, thanks to your brother, because you're my brother, your uncle. <laughs> Because he was already ingrained in Hollywood. You know, he was the head of Disney music for 25 years. Um, and so I met a lot of what we called makeup jobs, mm-hmm. which were people who looked really good on film, but not as good in public. Sure. Michelle Pfeiffer is not a makeup job. She looks stunning. I don't doubt it. 
I don't doubt it. Her, her, and ah, uh, oh, what's another starlet? I mean, it seems like during the eighties, you you didn't really miss makeup. I I think the the, the makeup. Jobs oh, were they probably were there. Really I like, mean, the first time I saw Julia Roberts, which was in Hamburger Hamlet, uh, well, not, I mean, as, not as attractive as on film. But yeah. that being said, that being said, that being said. There were a handful of people that I just went, whoa. I remember being in line at Jerry's Deli, which was a, a huge after-hour place because it was like they served breakfast kind of 24 hours a day, that kind of stuff, you know. And it was, a, and, and they had, oh, man, they had great pancakes. So um, Jerry's Deli, which I don't think is there anymore. I remember being there one night in line with my buddy Mason Cooper and Look behind us, and right behind us was, first of all, Rick Dukeman, who co-starred in The Burbs, and he was being a jerk. He was the first person I ever heard in Hollywood learn, uh, hear the line, don't they know who I am? Oh, that's, uh, one, it, that's, that's a line that you think is parodied more than actually used. Oh, but. no, he used it, and I wanted to turn yes. around and punch him. And, but behind him was the lead singer of Warrant, and his girlfriend at the time, Bobby Brown, the girl from the Cherry Pie video. And, yep, she was not a makeup job either. She was gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah so, as, as tends to, that tends to happen with uh, the girlfriends of lead singers of, of, of hair metal bands. <laughs> they, they, they're not settling. Well, my, one of my favorite quotes of all time was they asked Simon LeBond, the lead singer of Duran Duran, why do you date... Uh, supermodels and he just looked at her quizzically he goes because i can <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> if you can do it go for it yeah so in this movie though yeah as you said we have jason alexander with hair yep it A looks lot of hair. very odd it looks like something you're not supposed to be seeing am i right it's it's like it's like a cursed image it's like if arnold didn't have his accent or if chuck north wasn't immortal <laughs> it's not right you're not wrong. Yeah, but he that was his actual hair. I've seen, I'll bring this up later, I watched um, the Tom Savini documentary about the making of The Burning, and he, he brought it up. He said, yeah, Jason had hair. He had a lot of hair. <laughs> Where did it all go? It's a thick mane of hair. Where did that go? We have to ask Gilman Joel. And it was such a small window, right, between that and Seinfeld and... Uh, what else is he in? Pretty Woman? It seems like it's not that big of a gap. He must have shaved it or something. Oh, my no, God. No, he had just had uh, male pattern baldness that developed between... I mean, he filmed this in 1980, and he started mm -hmm. filming Seinfeld in 90. So there's a 10-year gap. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. He, he looks infinitely younger in this movie. I'll say that. He looks way younger than 10 years younger than George Costanza. I mean, he's, he's playing against what looks to be late teens, early 20s, you know, kids. And he fits right in in, in a, quite a few scenes. So it, it was surprising to me to know that there's such a short gap. I mean, 10 years does not seem like that long. All right. I got to look up how old he was at the time now. But it seems I, to me that, that they're usually not kids. They're usually cast 10 years older than they're supposed to be in movies. But... That's, that's just how it goes in Hollywood. Okay, he was 21 at the time. Yeah, I mean, he looks 21. So, wait, he was only 31 when he did Seinfeld? Yep. 
No way. Really? He looked yep. 45. But he still looks the same. That's the weird thing. It's except for his hair. I know. It, it just it it's it just looks like a totally different person. Well, that, I, I mean, just today he looks the same as he did on Seinfeld. Oh yeah. So it's not that he aged terribly. It's just for that gap, he had a big leap, and then he hasn't changed since then. Well, like I said, I've said that on this podcast before. I mean, when I first first time I went to the China Club, there was a lot of cocaine. So I, you know, I I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not does saying co- he did it allegedly. I'm not saying. Well, drugs do um, limit your testosterone level, which is you know. Um, tied to your follicle level so i'm just saying i would say that the only drug that doesn't mummify you and keep you the same age is is meth because that'll make you look like you're 100 when you're at the age of 20 that and heroin but well with the exception of slash but um okay so and i'm not meaning to throw gilman joel under the bus here i'm not saying gilman you were doing cocaine back in the early 90s and that's why you experienced male pattern baldness so she, maybe 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 he was a hollywood big cat i mean how are we to know well we don't know you're right we don't know i've maybe only exchanged the, emails with the guy i don't know you may be right exactly maybe the reason he knows so much about movies in hollywood is because he was one of them joel did you work for the weinsteins and you're just trying to cover it up i think he might i think he might have and that that lines want to know that makes me a little scared because that means he's got a lot of influence. If he doesn't like our podcast, he, he listens in one day and doesn't like the episode, we're gone. Yep. You may be right. You may be right. <sighs> I'm not going to mess with him. I'm not going to mess with him. And I yeah. wouldn't anyways because he's such a nice guy. Well, that's all we know from the podcast. Well, he's going to be on soon, so we'll find I out. Can't but, um, <laughs> so, um, all right. So, I. Uh, the score mm-hmm. of this movie was done by Rick Wakeman. Do you know who that is? No, but the, the name sounds vaguely familiar, but that might just be because it sounds like every American man's name. Well, he's not American. He's British. Mm. He was the lead keyboardist for the progressive rock band, Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I was not expecting that. Yep. He was offered a percentage of the profits for doing the score, but turned it down because he thought it would be a bomb. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame him. <laughs> what do you think of the score, though? I do not remember a single track from it. Really? Not going to lie to you, I don't remember it. I remember writing in my notes at one part, uh, this is kind of skipping ahead, but at the scene where we have Todd and Cropsey and, and, and the old abandoned uh, Camp Blackfoot, there, there, there was a stinger, a really cool synth stinger that I thought was was neat when I was yeah. flashing back and forth. But other than that, honestly, not gonna lie to you, I don't remember a single track off it. I couldn't hum a track from this movie to save my life, and I've seen it twice now. I actually could. Do you, do you care to share? Uh, no, because my voice is terrible. But I, I, I actually thought it was pretty effective. I mean, look, you know. I grew up with Yes because mm-hmm. your uncle Greg, my brother, my eldest brother Greg was really into Yes, and so I heard Yes played and all that kind of stuff. Now, by the 1980s, Yes had kind of, if you want to say, sold out and they become more um, <clears throat> rock pop oriented with like mm-hmm. songs like "Owner of the Lonely Heart," 
Which is still a good song. It is a good song. I like that soft rock sound. Yeah, but they, you know, but before that, they were more like, more kind of classic Rush oriented. Yeah, more prog. And then yeah, more prog. Yeah. I liked the, I actually liked the score with the exception of um, when they're canoeing and they, they make banjo. this distinction. The banjo, yes. Yeah. And it is, let's face it, this movie is a bit deliverance without the... Yeah, well, I know, you know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's a bit deliverance, uh, but it doesn't go quite that far. Uh, right. and, and if you'll remember, Friday the 13th also had a banjo number in it uh, during yes, the scene where they're did. driving. So it seems like that that might have been ripped from that. Or maybe that's a, just the vibe you get from from summer camp movies in the 80s. Though my problem with the score is it's just not as iconic as something like Harry Manfredini's score from Friday. I mean, you hear that and every single piece instantly sticks in your mind. Uh, I can't say the same for The Burning. I just don't think it has that iconic quality. Which you need to post on our Instagram page or our Facebook page. What do you have from Harry Manfredini? I'm looking at it right now, Dad, and I can tell you, it is the most pristine CD of the Friday the 13th soundtrack ever, signed by Mr. Harry Man- Manfredini with the musical staff of the Kiki Mama theme from Friday the 13th. Did he not sign it to you as well? I believe he did. Yes, he did. I had him put Jackson on there, yes, he and did. Listen, and listen, hey, not to sound vain, but if I ever become a famous horror director, this will double in value. Oh, 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 absolutely. Harry Manfredini and Jackson Rawlings written on it. Oh, boy, this is going to be a hot <laughs> ticket item. <laughs> yes, I told him. I met him at Camp Crystal Lake, a.k.a. Camp No Bibosco. When I met him, I was like, my son's a big fan of yours. He's a musician. He's a wannabe horror fan. He was like, oh, what's his name? And he wrote it on there just for you. Mm -hmm. And that's another reason why I'll I'll stand by him and not behind the lead keyboardist of of, not Rush. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, you better stand behind Rush. Yeah. Yeah, Getty. No, 100%. I am a Getty fanboy. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm way more into Rush. I'll say that much. But... uh, like I said, and, and even not even Friday the 13th, I would say even the soundtrack for Sleepaway Camp is more iconic because I can remember in my oh. head a, a, a theme from that. Oh, oh, I'm going to have to disagree with you hot there. Take, I hot think take, was, but I'm standing behind it. I thought this was a lot better than Sleepaway Though I will say, my only love for Sleepaway Camp was watching it in the 80s and the ending, other than that, that movie is a how-did-this-get-made piece of crap. I like the stories behind it more than the movie itself. Uh, though I will say, just the same with this, I think if you're looking for mindless fun just to sit down and have fun with your friends, this might be this this and Sleepaway Camp might be in the running for that. Oh, I think this is much better than Sleepaway Camp. That's, that's my opinion. And I love Felisa Rose. You know, I love what she does with Joe Bob. She's had a long career. God bless her and keep her. But that movie, the acting is terrible. There are parts of it that are just disgusting. I mean, disgusting. Disgusting. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a Weinstein wrote that movie, too. Well, yeah, if the Weinsteins were being honest, yeah, they would have written Sleepaway Camp. So, all right, let's go on to something else. 
the man behind the special effects. What did you think of the special effects of ben, the burning? I thought they were fantastic. I'm going to be honest. I thought that was the best part of the movie. Tom Savini really delivers, and he gets an extra credit this time. If you pay attention to the end credits, not only does he get a special effects uh, credit, he gets horror scene composer or director, I can't remember, but yep. he... he laid out all of the horror scenes in this movie. He was behind them. So whenever you see a scene where Cropsey is stalking somebody and, and, and about to kill them, just think about the fact that Tom Savini planned all that out. Okay. <clears throat> well, let's talk about Tom. So mm -hmm. you're in possession of a Friday 13th 4 mask signed by Tom Savini. Sure am. Yep. And I've spent a day with Tom Savini. Um... Here's what I get from him. He's mm -hmm. a very, he can be a very charming person. Mm -hmm. I know that Haddonfield Hatchet and Greg Amortis are good buddies, disagree. But he can be a very charming person. Um, his, cl his claims mm -hmm. about, you know, like he said he wrote the end of Friday 13th. Right. Do you buy it? I think he partially inspired it but do i think he was the lead uh mind behind the the ending of friday the 13th no though i i do think he had a hand in it okay fair enough and so here's my conspiracy theory we've been working up to this we'll come back to talk about the effects but here's my conspiracy theory you ready mm -hmm. all right he turned down friday the 13th part two after reading the script to do the burning do you right. think having that he had read friday 13 part two mm -hmm. he had an effect on the script for the burning no definitely i felt friday the, thir the 13th part two in this in a lot of places especially if you'll remember the campfire scene where the story yes. of cropsy is being told is that not exactly like the jason scene from friday the 13th part two where they recount the events of the first friday the 13th Absolutely. So do you think he read Friday 13th Part 2? Mm -hmm. And according to every interview I've ever seen, he was like, this is stupid. You know, mm -hmm. Jason shouldn't be alive. He's, you know, what's he been doing? You know, what's he been eating crawfish? This doesn't make any sense. And so he decided to do the burning instead of Friday 13th Part 2. Do you think he took his knowledge of Friday 13th Part 2 and influenced the burning? Oh, certainly. I think if you've read the script, there's no way that it won't at least subconsciously inform your decisions on a new movie. Um, now, do I do I think that he was trying to steal the best elements of Friday the 13th Part 2 and, and get rid of all the elements that he didn't like? I don't think so. I don't think he was trying to make a true uh, spiritual successor to Friday the 13th. But I do think he was influenced, especially, as I mentioned before, uh, with uh, the campfire scene and the big build-up to the scare with the fake Cropsy. That's ripped directly from friday the 13th part two i also think that he may have thought okay they shouldn't bring jason back so let me just invent a new killer that'll start killing people right that would make way more sense than having jason again so my theory on 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 the burning as it stands is that the burning is to friday the 13th as halloween 3 is to halloween 1 and 2 where they wanted to continue the series but they didn't want the same killer hmm yeah, I, I can see that. I, if, 
folks are listening, we cover the entire Friday 13th franchise. You can go mm-hmm. back and listen to that. I did my best to try to reconcile Friday 13th 1 and 2. Um, the novellas. I, yes, the novellas make sense, but I can't, which I used to own and lost in a flood, but uh, I mean, I can't make sense of Jason turning from Hillbilly Jason in part two to WWE Jason in part three. Mm-hmm. And ironically, with the same director. But that being said, um, I think that Tom Savini's effects work here is amazing, especially in, can we talk about it, the canoe scene? Yes, I think that's probably the most iconic scene in the movie. I mean, a, a screenshot from it is in the poster with uh, Cropsey holding up the garden shears, taken straight from the movie. And, uh, I mean, it, it is really horrific with the quick cuts and the, the really quick flashes of gore. Uh, it's pretty terrifying. And it has the best effects and one of the worst effects in the movie. Uh, the best effect being when the girl's, like, forehead is slit open and this really yeah. quick shot, it looks so real. I was like, oh, when I watched it. But I think the one that doesn't work, and I think it's probably the lighting, how bright it is, they're out in the middle of the day, um, is when uh, Eddie is speared through the neck with the uh, the garden shears, and his neck looks really, really thin, and like it's not connected to his body, because obviously it wasn't, it was a fake body and neck. Right. Sort of like what he did with Kevin Bacon in part one. Yeah. But I think the reason it initially works better for Kevin Bacon, and I will still say that the second shot they cut to with the profile of Kevin Bacon, you can tell the neck is a different color than his chin. But uh, but the first shot, when it's first speared through his neck in the bed, I think that's as best as it's going to get, just because the lighting and everything matched up perfectly. However, like I said, that slit to the forehead of the, of the one girl was really, really convincing. It made me cringe. Uh, and just the editing of that whole scene and, and the music. I will point out that the music and sound design was really good in that scene, added to the terror. And then we just flash right back to the to the alive people like nothing happened. And they're all jovial and jolly, not knowing what just happened to their friends. And right. that, that is the terrifying part. Well, also, Woodstock, played mm-hmm. by Fisher Stevens, mm-hmm. when he gets his fingers cut off. That's right. I forgot about that. And you get the zoom into his terrifying face. That was really well done. Yeah, and, and really, like, I mean, he seems really young in comparison to the rest of the cast. Like, he seems oh like Oh, my lord, kid. he looks like he's 15. I know, and that, it really hit me when that happened. I was like, I can't even imagine looking down at my own hand and seeing all my fingers cut off. That must have been terrifying. And later, correct me if I'm wrong, it might not have been Woodstock, but when, uh, when the counselor uh, swims out to uh, the raft and somebody's yeah. arm comes off, when did that happen in, in the, uh, the Cropsey attack scene, when that, that arm just kind of floats onto her off the raft? That's near the end, but that is Woodstock's arm, yeah. It is Woodstock's that, arm, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is Woodstock's arm, but it, yeah, that's near the end when they discovered that the raft did not mm-hmm. succeed. When it floats back downstream. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And and you know that Cropsey had to send it back that way. He knew they would discover it. He wanted them to start getting scared, uh, which I find really funny, because it wouldn't just kind of float back on its own. He definitely propelled it in that direction. Um, Well, because he really wants Todd, right? mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Todd is the only remaining member of that party who 
and I assume, did do you think that off camera he went after the other campgoers that set him on fire, or do you think he was just going? Tob was his first victim. Well, you've got that opening. Well, not opening scene, but probably twenty minutes into the movie. So yeah. you have Cropsy. He's burned. He goes to the hospital, and then they say five years later, mm-hmm. where they haven't, you know, they haven't had any success in treating his burns. Which is, I guess, he's been in a coma because you hear his heart rate, and it sounds pretty, uh, pretty constant. And they they act like he's not awake. Well, but he grabs the orderly. Sure, but I think that's when he came out of it because then we see him in a wheelchair, right? Or was was the five year gap right there? No, it was after that. After he grabbed the orderly, then there was the five-year gap. Ah, that's strange. So he was awake and th- for five years in that hospital right. before he was finally released. And so they he- announced that the skin grafts didn't work and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Skin grafts didn't work, and they also warned him, don't let revenge take over your life. You know, it was an accident, and we can't do anything for six months. Just chill out for- until then. But immediately he starts killing, and for no reason he just kills a sex worker. I don't know why he just decides to. Yeah, like, he kills a prostitute for literally no reason other than he's just a psychopath. I think it's just to add to the body count, honestly, from a technical perspective. And it reminded me a lot of Maniac. I don't know if that if that reminded you of that. I, I agree, absolutely. Yeah. A weird thing in that scene that kind of like was was you know confusing to me is we get that POV shot when he's about to kill her. And she's looking into the camera, but then we see Cropsy come into camera from the left. So was she just looking at the camera? It doesn't really make any sense. It's kind of a confusing choice from a cinematography perspective. It, it doesn't make any sense. I, I was thinking the same thing. It was like, okay, you release him. You see him going back upstate mm-hmm. because obviously he's in New York City. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you see him going upstate. The more effective scene would have been for him to have been released, him go back to his cabin, get the garden shears, like clank the garden shears, and then we fast forward to the camp. Yeah, do it Edgar Wright style, where it's like a montage of quick cuts, you know, make it, yeah. make it real dramatic. Uh, yeah, I think that would have been a much better idea from a pacing perspective. I don't think we need that basket case-esque scene where he's just walking through uh, the kind of seedy parts of New York. I think it would have been, yeah, much, much easier uh, on, on the viewers to just have him go straight back to Camp Blackfoot. Um, and and also, I mean, we wouldn't have—we don't really need— any more of Cropsy than we get already. I, I don't think we needed that extra scene for body count. I mean, he kills five kids in in fifteen seconds. I don't think we needed yeah, another to the, the body count. scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, but also, but I think that the Weinstein's were thinking, knowing their process. Well, well you have to have a kill scene early on. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you could have yeah. one in the hospital mm-hmm. where. You could have had one in the hospital that are like, well, you're not ready to be released, all this other kind of stuff, and just had him kill somebody in the hospital to get out. You didn't yeah. need to have the whole prostitute thing. That was weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I definitely think that that definitely reminded me of Maniac. Just like it felt like a totally different movie. Basket Case and Maniac. It was a weird combination of that. But then we never go back to the city. It's all rural from there. It's all the woods after that. So I have no idea why they thought that was necessary. And why would they take him five hours into the city? So this was shot in Buffalo, uh, outside of Buffalo, New York, which mm-hmm. 
you spent a lot of time in when you were a kid. You don't remember it because you were like one, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you've been in that area, but, and it is really rural. Once you get out of sight of Buffalo, it's, it's pretty, there are a lot of woods and all that kind of stuff. And, but okay. But why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't why, know. Why take it to like a, you know, uh, I, I don't understand why they took it to like a gritty, central you know kind of i i don't understand why they took it to manhattan in the mm-hmm. i don't understand that at all my theory reshoot they took it to somebody with money they thought oh it's not scary enough so they just added in another kill scene well or, my or theory is that the, a, the weinsteins were based in new york yeah, they, yeah or or another possible uh, option would be that they shot that early on before they even knew what the movie was really going to look like. They shot that, oh, yeah. and then they were like, okay, uh, I guess we're just going right back to the camp now. Uh, it, it really doesn't fit, but who am I to complain? It's just more more horror for me to watch. Uh, but but honestly, I think it would have been a tighter movie without that. But yeah. I do I do like the way that they, they do the exposition as Cropsy is being wheeled out of the hospital. I do kind of like that, how all the voices pile on top of each other, and then they reach like this climax, and then it goes silent as Cropsy gets up out of his wheelchair and walks out of the hospital. I thought that was a cool idea, um, but he should have just caught a cab and gone right back to the camp. Yeah, and he's in pure black for some reason, but anyway. Yeah, I, I don't understand that. Where did he get those tight black leather, leather gloves and a trench coat and a fedora I from? I don't know. I don't know. But anyway... Um, yeah, that that's obviously the Weinstein's. Um, huh. So let's go back to special effects for just a second. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Tom Savini actually did a lot of the stunts. And by the way, listeners, if you give enough Patreon, you know, support or I win the lottery, one of the things I'm going to do when Jackson um, uh, graduates high school here. In a year, I would send him to Tom Savini's special effects makeup school for whatever it is, three months, six months in Pittsburgh. But anyway, um, Tom Savini, like when Cropsy set on fire, mm-hmm. the initial shots when Cropsy is set on fire, that's Tom Savini. I was wondering who that was. There are lots of burn stunts in this movie, by the way. And yep. try as I might, I was scanning through the credits. I didn't see somebody who was doing special stunts for Crossy. I just saw the actor who played him, uh, you know, in the suit. Um, but yeah, very impressive burn stunts. I mean, when you have Cropsy in the bed and his legs are on fire, then he busts out of the door fully on fire, then jumps into the river. And that's not the only time he's on fire in the movie. Really great burn effects. Um, the only thing that I think beats this is Friday Part 7, where Kane Hodder did that minute and a half uninterrupted oh, yeah. burn. Uh, but, I mean, this this does come close. It's a really great stunt. And, yeah, we know that Tom Savini does a lot of, of, of his own stunts. He does a lot of stuff that he designs. I mean, he plummeted off, and we were there. It's a rather high second floor of that mall where they oh, shot... Yeah. Where they shot Dawn of the Dead. I mean, it is yep. it is not a, a a small jump, and he did it right into a fountain. Um, Backwards. Yep. So I mean, the man obviously is a little bit crazy because he does he does some very life threatening things, but it's all for the art, I guess. Well, yep. We went to the Monroeville Mall. I've been there several times. You've actually been there two times. You just remember this last time because mm-hmm. the first time you were a baby. But yeah, that 
he did that jump off the second story of the Monroeville Mall, uh, and he actually missed his mark, and he hurt himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this, yeah, the leg, there was another stunt person. It was a son of a legendary stunt person who did the full body burn. And actually, this the son of the stunt person was only 17 years old. I believe it. I, I, hey, I mean, teens are, are crazier than adults. I feel like they'll do anything <laughs> to be in a movie. That did the full body, body burn, but he did the leg burn. The full body burn, the guy who did the full body burn, I can't remember his name, but he actually died in a stunt a couple mm-hmm. years later in a helicopter crash in Airwolf. Oh, jeez. But Tom Savini did the leg stunt, Mm -hmm. and he told his crew, when I cross my legs, that's when I've had enough come hit the CO2 and and blow me out. And so that's what happened. But he did that scene. It looks great. The the whole origin for Cropsy uh, scene, I think it's it's done really well. And I mean, also the actor that played Cropsy did a great job with those screams. I mean, they were just, ugh, they, they sent a shiver down my spine. And uh, Tom Savini, I mean, obviously that that scene was his baby in that movie as well. So I, I'm sure he would do anything to bring that to the screen. Uh, but very impressive. I'm I'm always impressed by Tom Savini. Um, just his work over the years is it's never less than average. Um, I can't point out a single time he's done something that I hated. That where I was like, oh, that effect is just awful. It's always at least good, and I think that's a testament to the guy's work ethic. Well, and that's. If you watch the documentary about Tom Savini on Shudder, I mean, he said that people have asked him again and again, why did you stop doing special effects? And he says, because I can't do what I used to do. And so if I can't do what I used to do, I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's he's just committed to excellence. He has arthritis and so forth. And he's just gotten to the point where he said, if I can't do it right, I'm not going to do it at all. He's already reached legend status. There's no reason to come back. I mean, there's no incentive for him. And I feel like that's kind of the same way that John Carpenter feels to a certain extent, where, I mean, there's no reason for him to come back and direct another movie. He's already made so many classics. And I feel like he probably couldn't reach that level again, even if he tried, because he's already gone to the peak, uh, as well with Tom Savini. I mean, Day of the Dead with that gut scene, with those pig uh-huh. guts. Yeah. One of one of the most disturbing effects in all of, of, of cinema, especially when uh, his throat is ripped out by the zombies. Oh, it's just, it's such great work. And uh, yeah, I don't blame him. He wants to be very in control. You can see with his crew, like the work he does, it's all masterminded by him. His crew will, will do a lot of the handiwork, but uh, especially in later movies, he, he was definitely very in control with his, uh, his special effects. And so I don't blame him for, for not wanting to take a more hands-off approach to them uh, nowadays. Yeah, and again, I know that uh, some of our listeners and our podcast friends have had issues with him, but I had just nothing but a joyous experience with him when I spent the day with him at Camp Novi Bosco. He was wonderful. He was gracious, and he was just incredible. So, and if you're a Patreon out there and you want to donate money to sending Jackson to the Tom Savini School of Special Effects, I'm sure he accepted. I got to learn from the maestro. <laughs> Absolutely. So what else do you want to talk about with this movie? Okay. We got to talk about Jason Alexander. We talked, we, we, we touched on it earlier. 
But uh, let's talk about his clothing, first of all. The clothing he wears in this movie. Right. In the earlier scenes, he's wearing a green football shirt that says 96 on it with no team name. So he might as well have a cap to match that just says Go Sports on it. Uh, right. Everything in this movie is the most generic 80s clothes ever, which is also true of the, of the of the Friday the 13th films. I feel like if they're not wearing flannel, they're wearing an athletic shirt, and those are the only two options, which I find really funny. But Jason Alexander is fantastic in this role as Dave. Yes, I mean, he, he is. is yeah. He is really funny. And the lines, if you look at the subtitles, the lines With, aren't that w- funny. Well, with the exception of the softball scene where he's being really pervy and really gross. Yeah, well, at least he doesn't go as far as Eddie, who pretty much commits sexual assault. Yes, um, yes. But, but he is definitely eyeing up one of, the, uh, one of the people playing softball, which is really creepy. But again, that was written by Harvey Weinstein, so you can kind of see where that yeah. comes from. Yeah. Also, you know... I, the whole movie just has this really kind of like dirty feel to it. Like you're not supposed to be watching it, especially the scene, uh, the shower scene where uh, we get a full frontal nudity thing from a from a kid. They're supposed to be a high schooler, I'm pretty sure. Um, obviously, the actor she was looks it. really young, and you 100% you know that Harvey Weinstein wrote that thing and oh, yeah. knew the actress uh, at the time. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Very creepy, um, and it does feel very exploitative. But again, a lot of the movies of that era were very exploitative. I mean, you think of Sleepaway Camp, which is just really disgusting in a lot of aspects. I mean, we get that that oh, hot curling uh, iron scene. A lot of aspects, yeah. Um, it's just the, the the early 80s slashers were very exploitative, and I can kind of honestly see where um, Ebert and Siskel were coming from when they talked about Oh, absolutely. It is. I, I, and we're going to do a Patreon episode some point on Cisco and Ebert. But while I don't completely agree with Cisco and Ebert, and there are times when Cisco and Ebert were just like, wait a minute, what? Totally off the I, mark. Yeah. Oh, completely. I remember, the, spoiler alert, they did a review of Psycho 2 where they were like, it's well made, it's well acted, it's well written. But we don't need a sequel to Psycho, so therefore, thumbs down. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Yeah. And so, yeah, there were those moments, but I do get what they're coming from, and I wrote a blog on our on our website about this. It was like, okay, when you put your you know self in where you're rooting for the killer, mm-hmm. it is a little weird. It yeah yeah and. Especially when it's not like an iconic character, when you have like Freddy. At well, that even point, if it's, like, I mean, look, you look back at Halloween. You're rooting for Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, exactly, because she's well written. I think that's the difference. Exactly. She's well written and well acted. When you have all like throwaway characters, like every character in Sleepaway Camp, you're gonna end up rooting for the killer, even though we have no idea who the killer is until the very, very end. Um, so, yeah, I can definitely see where they came from, and it does feel very exploitative, and I think we know why now, because the people who made it, the, person, the people who wrote it, right. uh, but, but yeah, it does feel very exploitative, um, and just really creepy, the, the script in some parts, but again, Jason Alexander, and the scenes where he's not being a total perv, really funny deliveries of, of lines. Yeah, it's only that opening scene where he's on the softball field. Mm-hmm. After that, he's really funny. He kind of seems to me like... Like, 
everybody thinks he's 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 the funny guy of the group but he's he's not that funny like i think if he was outside of that group he wouldn't know what to do but he's kind of weaseled himself into a place where he's in a good spot with the more popular members of the summer camp and the nerdier ones like he's friends with everybody basically because everybody's got something to benefit off of him he's like as anthony michael hall says in uh 16 candles he's the king of the geeks Mm mm-hmm yeah, I mean, he is a black market deal. Can we talk about this? I mean, he is, he's got everything in his stock. He is kind of like uh, a wheeling, dealing sort of dude, and everybody's got to deal with him just because of that. Uh, he has some questionable items that he's selling to the kids at the summer camp, and he's making a buck off of them. Uh, and his remarks about them is he's kind of insulting the people that he's selling to, uh, but they kind of put up with him. Yeah, he's, well, yeah, but he's, I, I've seen that person. I know that person. Yeah, he's, he's that kid on the playground who would be like, you want to buy some cigarettes? Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, he's Jason Alexander. He's George Costanza. He's charming. You can't help but, but find him endearing, even when he is a little bit weird. And he survives, does he not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, is, which adds to my conspiracy theory. I was watching this, and the, and the wheels were turning. Okay. Could right. this be now? Now hear me out. Could this All be right. a Seinfeld prequel? I could see it. A spinoff prequel with Costanza and his early days. He he went to the witness protection pro- program after after the whole Cropsey incident. He well, comes out, George Costanza. He moves in, you know, into an apartment in New York, and the rest is history. Well, his fiance does die, and he regrets even being engaged to her. So, yeah, you may be right. You may be right. I think it might be a Seinfeld prequel. I mean, you cannot prove me wrong. Technically, you can't prove me wrong. So I guess if it can't be falsified, it it can't be true. But I'll hold on to that. All right. We'll stick with it. All right. What what else do you want to talk about with the burning? Okay. Glazer. You know, he's kind of the jerk of the group. He's the wannabe jock cool guy. But he's, okay, definitely the jerk. He makes my stomach churn. His eyes are just, like, crazy. He seems like he would he would snap in an instant and kill somebody. Um, I am surprised he went out so easy with Cropsy. I was expecting him to, to fight dirty with Cropsy. But I guess that just goes to show that he is all bark and no bite. Um, you can see oh, he's afraid gosh. of Todd. He's afraid of Todd. So I guess, yeah, what would he do against Cropsy? Um, but, uh... Yeah, definitely, definitely hate that guy. But he's played very well. I mean, he is—he plays the character he's given very well. But but you still you still love to hate him. Um, the raft they make—they—they they're stuck on this on this uh, this you know they're far out from the camp. They're stuck. All their canoes have been presumably let go by a fleeing camper. Uh, so they have to construct a raft out of sticks, and somehow. This raft made out of logs and sticks found in the middle of the woods supports five people and their paddles. <laughs> you can tell that thing was not held up by wood alone. You know the special effects group and the set design. They put buoys under that thing. There is no way they would trust a, a platform of logs to support five actors and a camera. Well, that may go back to the girl who said, hey, these things float. The jug, yeah, the milk jug. Yeah. I I doubt that that would help any. Oh, come on. 
I I feel like I feel like uh like the crew of the movie secretly put some some life jackets and buoys underneath that thing to keep it afloat. Because I mean they put they mount a camera on it later, so there's no way they would trust you know just sticks with that. Well, um, and also okay. we've You're... seen how well making a, a stick raft goes for Tom Hanks. I very much doubt this would support five people. <laughs> All right, fair enough, but um. The guy who played Glazer, mm-hmm. he actually, other than the ones we've mentioned, Jason Alexander, Holly Hunter, Fisher Stevens, he won the best career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Wow. Dances with Wolves, The Unforgiven, Spider-Man, yeah. and the X-Files movie, which I just watched and, the other day. Exactly. He's done a lot of stuff. The guy went on to a great career. Yeah. Uh, and he wasn't uh, the main character of this movie. <laughs> I guess that says something. Yeah, exactly. So Wow. All right. What else do you want to talk about with the burning? Okay. The Cropsy makeup. We get the reveal at the end, right? When Todd right. is facing off against Cropsy. Right. I think it looks great. I think uh, he looks just the right amount of this figure, but it's also believable. You can see the human in him. Uh, but he's also, you can see how he would gain urban legend status. Um, I think it's great work from the Savini crew. What do you think about the way Crofty looks? Well, Savini's always complained about it because he said he only had three days to put it together. And he has said that since then, he would have taken off his nose. He would have made him, he sure. would have made him look more like an authentic burn victim. So more like Freddy Krueger, basically. Yes. Um, so Savini doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. So th- does that affect you? No, I still think it looks good. He doesn't look like a burn victim, except for his arms. Like that, th- those look good. Whenever he grabs the the hospital attendant, I don't know if he's a, a st- just like a, a doctor or a nurse or just like an orderly. But he grabs that, it, the guy he gra- grabs is an orderly. Yeah, he's got the burn uh, makeup on his arm looks really good. His face is more melty than burnt. It kind of looks like rubber that's been burnt, like melted. Uh, but I think it looks good. It is. It, it kind of looks like a pig almost. It's got that that kind of look to it. Um, but I think it looks. I think it looks good. And you can still tell it's Cropsy. You can still tell it's the dude from the beginning. I mean, I think if he would have lost the nose, you wouldn't have been able to tell as much because he's got a very characteristic upturned kind of nose, and you can see that in him at the end. Uh, so I I disagree. I think without the nose, it would have looked better. Maybe, but I think it works as is. I think he's still terrifying, and we don't see him all that often. I think they use him sparingly and to good effect. We see him mostly in firelight whenever that flamethrower is on, right. and uh, when he steps into the light, I think one or two times. But right. he looks really good for the time that he's on screen. Maybe not as good as he could have looked, but again, low budget, not very much time given to the effects crew, so I think they did. Uh, pretty well. And another burn stent, stunt to, to end the movie. They set uh, Cropsy aflame, and poor guy, set, he set on fire again, but the, the stunt still looks good. Well, what about the axe in the head? The axe in the head? I don't remember him getting an axe in the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Todd gives, an a- gives him an axe in the head. That's how it ends. Man, I don't remember that. Was it good? Oh, yeah. I don't think anybody any, anything can top the part four Jason machete slide on with the eye. I think no, I think it's not it's not that good, but it is pretty good. Cool. I'll have to rewatch it because I totally missed that. Um, but yeah, some really great stunts at the end. Now listen, I've thought about this a lot. If I were ever in the in the uh, position to do a burn stunt on a movie of mine, I would never do it. 
Because here's the thing. There, you have to pay a fortune for fire retardant material and gel. I mean, stuff's not cheap. And I don't think it's worth the risk. I mean, it looks great. Um, but you these days, you can do it with CGI and make it look just as good. I mean, you've seen Midsummer. Oh. You've, oh. seen, you've seen Midsummer, right? Oh. Do you remember we saw Mid- Midsummer together, but look, no. Do you remember That's at the end when blasphemy. the... blasphemy. you got to do it practical. Do you remember at the end when the shed is on fire? Yes, but you One have thing. to do it practical. Kane Hodder has stated in his documentary. He burned his neck have, up. He still says you have to do it practical. I don't know, man. I would not be willing to put my actors at risk. It is a very high-risk stunt, even more so than jumping okay. off stuff and, and having explosions. Getting engulfed in flame and having fire-retardant material and a little bit of gel spread on your skin, but I don't Kate think Potter I would has said that he got too arrogant where mm-hmm. he got injured and that typically that's not how it worked. And he did it yeah. after that. I know. I... I, I I respect that, but I would not. I would not want to even have that risk. All Listen right. To me. If you had that Kane is Hodder on okay. your film, and Kane Hodder saying, "Jackson, I can do this," I would say, "Mr. Hodder, no, I don't want this to be the movie where you hurt yourself even more." But you, you really want CGI flames? That is the one effect that I think should be done CGI. Think about how bad oh, burning to no, death is. No, no, no. you know how bad burning to death is? I burned my finger on a stove before, and it was agonizing. Imagine that being over your I, whole body. I have too, but if a stuntman is saying, I got this, I'm going with him. I'd have him sign a waiver. That's all I'm saying. I've not already wanted... signed a waiver. I mean, that's already happened, but... If he... Kane Hodder wants to be on my movie, I'll, I'll say this much. If I ever pen a script and I put it out there, and Kane Hodder says, I would love to be in this movie with one catch. Real flames all over my body, control burn, we're doing it. I would say, okay, Mr. Hodder, but please promise me that you won't be mad if something goes wrong. Because I've never done anything like this before. But he has. That's true. He would guide me by the hand through the stunts. So now the more I'm thinking about it, I need Kane Hodder on my staff for a movie. Or Tom Savini. Yeah. I don't know. They're, but, hey, I respect uh, stuntmen for putting their necks on the line to get that shot. Uh, they're more devoted than any other part of the cast because they are really willing to put their butts on the line uh, for the better of the movie. And like I said earlier in reference to the burden stunt, I, and I still feel this way, um, the more I'm thinking about it, I think that honestly... Uh, really ups the quality of the movie, in my opinion, that you can see these controlled burns and that everything is done practically. It feels like the people making it were really invested in its production. Oh, absolutely. Well, but I I had friends when I was in Hollywood who were stuntmen, like Don McGovern. Mm-hmm. Don McGovern was a good friend of mine. Um, he did uh, Die Hard 2. He was, he was Sylvester Stallone's stunt double for a lot of things like in Cobra mm-hmm. and in Rocky three. Um, really smart guys. They knew what they were doing, even though we called Don stupid Don. Uh, we did that for another reason. Uh, we, we were just being dudes being cruel. So, but anyway, but Don was a good guy. And so no, they, they know what they're doing, man. Yeah. I, and yeah, the more I'm thinking about it, if the stunt man knows what they're doing, 
that's all fine by me. If the stunt team thinks they can do it, that's fine. But I would be so scared for my actors. Whenever I'm on any kind of set, it doesn't even matter if I'm actually working on it. I'm just watching a movie. And I've done that before. I've gone to sets just to watch it uh, go down. I'm always nervous, even in scenes that aren't action scenes, that somebody's going to trip and fall down the stairs or that somebody's going to twist their ankle when they're running. So many things can go wrong in a set, and there's such high stakes because you need to get that movie done within a certain amount of time. And if somebody hurts themselves, that's a delay you're looking at. Yeah, but one of the first um, big film sets I was on mm-hmm. was Back to the Future 2. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't worried about that. The stuntmen were just like, let's go. Let's do mm-hmm. it. And the director was good with it. It was Robert Zemeckis. And it was like, okay, let's go. Yeah. I mean, they have Biff stuntman crash into a lot of stuff over that series, don't they? Well, yeah, but it's just, you know, they trust the stunt people because they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The more I'm thinking about it, the more you've convinced me. Yeah, okay. I, I, I do trust the stunt people to do what they're, uh, what they're trained to do. It just it just scares me. You know what I mean? When I see somebody fully on fire and I know it's real, I'm like, wow, that is dedication. Well, yeah, but there are flame retardants, all that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, Tom's- have you seen the gel that they use? They yeah, literally slather themselves in what looks like jam. That's so crazy. I can't even imagine that. And they yeah, were but, but they felt I mean, when Tom Savini did the leg burn scene in the burning. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was covered in. He was fine. He was can like, we, he had no hesitation. Can we talk about how it's called the burning when the only burning happened at the very, very beginning and the very, very end? It yeah, would make, it would make it, much more sense if he had a flamethrower, right? Well, but the problem was if they called it Cropsy, mm-hmm. the problem was at that time it was an urban legend only in New Jersey and yeah. New York. It was before the internet, so. Yeah. Yeah, so it wouldn't have that mass appeal. But, exactly. I mean, never never in my 17 years on this earth have I heard of a movie named after an event that happens in the first three minutes of the runtime. Uh, but but I, I retroactively vote that we change that. Uh, I think, like, the first order of business would be renaming Reservoir Dogs 10 minutes of self-indulgent Tarantino dialogue over coffee. <laughs> um, and j- oh, just but I love lines. that movie so much. Mm-hmm. And another thing that reminded me of Tarantino, there are lots of barefoot shots in this movie, uh, especially in the scene where the female campers are waking up. I was not aware that Tarantino well, directed another movie before Reservoir Dogs. Tarantino does love his his slasher, so just mm-hmm. saying. He may have been involved. You never know. I mean, he later worked a lot with Miramax. That's all I'm saying. Well, I met Tarantino before he ever did a movie. When he was a video store clerk. or That's right. Do you want to tell that story about you correcting or at least informing Tarantino on Westerns? Uh, no. I you don't want to save that, that for Patreon? We'll save that for Patreon. Yeah. All right. So so go go to the Patreon if you want to hear how he met and corrected Quentin Tarantino in a video store yeah, in I L.A. Did. I did. Yeah. So, so my dad knows more about Western specifically than Tarantino. Well, about that specific Western. Mm-hmm. He was just wrong about that specific Western. That's mm-hmm. all. So anyway. All right. What else do you want to talk about with the burning? I don't know. I don't. Okay. We have this. We talked about earlier. The orderlies, right? They're talking in the hospital about how messed up Cropsy is. Can they talk like that? I feel like that'd be grounds for being fired. Uh, back in the 80s? No. Now, yes. 
I feel I feel like what do you expect to see in an intensive burn unit? They're like you've ne- this guy's cooked from head to toe. Yeah, dude. Yeah, it's an intensive but burn it's a and first of all, I mean that person on rotation is twenty years older than anybody who would be on rotation. I mean, I mean, but that being said, it's uh, in the eighties. Yes, you could get away with that. I I thought I thought that 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 was a little offensive. <laughs> like, like oh, uh, it's very offensive today. But back then, no. Mm-hmm. This is back in the day. We covered this. Where, you remember when we caught, covered Monster Squad with Hatchard? Yeah. yeah. I mean, where you got Fat Kid and all that kind of stuff. You couldn't say that today. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a different time. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, it just it just kind of bewildered me. And I see that in a lot of horror movies where the doctors are like, you should see this guy. And I'm like, they don't talk like that in real life. Um, no, not today. But then... Uh, the 80s were such a weird wonderland of, of just anything well, goes. It was, yeah, it was completely politically incorrect. And mm-hmm. so that was the point. Yeah. Well, that's all the notes that I have. I can sum up my thoughts before I move on to rating and reviewing, if you, unless you uh, have anything else nope. to say about the movie. Sum it up, and let's go to your rating recommendation. Go for it. This is the way I break it down, all right? Great effects and stunts. I would say great to good acting overall. I don't think there's a weak performance. There's just actors who are underutilized. Um, and I would say there's average writing. With the, yeah. with the with There's average writing with the exception of Dave, who I think has written really well. Uh, of course, Jason Alexander's character. He was great. I think every line from him was gold pretty much, uh, especially when interacting with his other campers. Yeah. Um, the score for me, as I mentioned earlier, was pretty average to me, except for a few scenes, like I mentioned, the canoe scene uh, and the ending scene where Todd... You mean and the banjo me. music? Yeah. yeah and yeah. the banjo music definitely doesn't yeah. help. But again, yeah. all, that also doesn't help on Friday the 13th. Um, the editing and cinematography uh, were also fairly forgettable, except for a few uh, exceptions. I think there's some really good ideas, like the scene where they're on the raft and it's cutting back and forth between the raft and the canoe, and you're like, oh, what's going to pop out of there? I was expecting a dead body. I was like, oh, we're just going to see the dead body. I had forgotten. Nope, Cropsy comes right out of there. So that was shot really well. Um, I really enjoyed it, um, but I think it's less rewatchable than your Friday the 13th, just because nothing came of the series. You know, I feel like if there was a really solid sequel to this, this would be grounds for a cult classic. But as is, I feel like it's just a fun time. I'm ready to rate it, and I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. All right. I'm right there with you. I'm actually right there with you. I give it a 7.5 out of 10. Call a stream. Mm-hmm. It's on Shudder. Yep. So if you have Shudder and Gilman Joel, you've never seen this. How dare you? You need to watch this. Do you agree with that, that he needs to stream it? Everybody needs to stream it at least once. I think if you haven't seen this and you're a big fan of other summer camp movies or just 80 slashers in general, give it a chance because it does have some original ideas and some great kills. Absolutely. So um, we appreciate the reviews that we get. And Jackson, do you have a five-star review that you can uh, maybe pull up here in a second and read from iTunes? I sure do. 
Yeah, we appreciate all five-star reviews. We're going to start reading uh, your five-star reviews on the podcast. The first one I want to start with is from Jayfree44, who says, Great podcast. I love this podcast. The father and son have a great chemistry together, and their knowledge of horror movies is fantastic. Aw, we appreciate that. Uh, so we thank you so much for your five-star reviews. Uh, they really mean a lot. And uh, they boost my ego, which you got to have if you're going to be a, a horror director, because they all <laughs> seem to be super proud of their own work. <laughs> you're you're trying to follow in the footsteps of John Carpenter and so forth. Absolutely. I'm trying to be a Savini, but I don't have the self-confidence to get to that. <laughs> oh, you get there, buddy. So, all right. You can follow us on Twitter at Father and Son Horror or our website, fatherandsonwatchhorror.com. Or we have a closed Facebook group. <clears throat> excuse me that is slowly growing and where can they find you online buddy uh twitter on twitter i'm matt kane underscore hero 12 that's k-a-i-n-e underscore hero 12 on letterboxd i'm matt kane hero that's one word we also got a youtube channel which is as always floating around the interwebs all right and they can find me as <clears throat> oh man i keep getting that <clears throat> thing in my throat they can find me on twitter and letterboxd at pastor matt r but uh, more importantly, next week, we're here's the thing. We're not sure where we're what we're covering next week because no, it's all up in the air. We get a mystery flavor. <laughs> yep, we're trying to schedule guests. Mm -hmm. We may do Fright Night from 1985. Ooh. We may do The Hills Have Eyes from 1977. Mm -hmm. And if neither of those guests are available. Well, we'll just do Hellraiser from 1987. Oh, you can't go wrong with those three options. I feel like it's a win-win-win. Absolutely. So thank you again to our Patreon supporters. So, buddy, say goodbye to the good people. Goodbye, and remember not to support black market merchants, especially if they're Jason Alexander. <laughs> All right, until next time, the family that watches Horde together slays together. See you next time.